Listen here, Bob. Paramount is going to come crashing down. We need hits. You've read The Godfather, right? Godfather. Sure, who hasn't? We've been all over town. No one wants to make this movie. So I need you to produce it. Get going. I can't believe you told me you read it. You better read fast on the plane. Oh, yeah, that's big. The Godfather is bringing us too many problems. You want me to take care of it? Gangster movies are dead. This is not just some gangster film. We need someone who understands Italians. For instance, Ford Coppola, he's got a great vision. We have to put this in the picture. A scene about gangsters arguing over sauce? No. A scene about family arguing over sauce. I got no cast. Do you think Pacino is actually a possibility? Cut it! No Pacino. Marlon Brando is interested. He's a nutcase. Can one thing go right with this picture? You want to make a movie that's going to make my people look like animals, and that ain't going to happen. I respect what you're saying, and I think I have a solution to our problem. You're still going to try and make this thing? I got no choice. I took a chance on you, and you stabbed me in the back. I won't judge you if you need to walk away from this. I'm not running either. This is what it's all about. The excitement. The thrill. Hello, hello, and welcome to Killer Casting. It is I, Lisa Zambetti, casting director of CBS's Criminal Minds. And I also have a little film that is on HBO Max right now. It's called The Gift. And it won second place in the 2022 HBO Max Asian Pacific American Visionaries Film Competition. I'm so proud of it. There are only two characters in it, Um, but it's a lovely, sad, uh, special little film. And I would love for you to check it out if you can. And I've got a whole bunch of other projects coming down the pike, but let's stop talking about me. Let's talk about my wingman, the thunder from down under, Deanie Weenie. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, Lisa. I'm very, very well. Just finished uh, uh, an insanely busy period of work, and I now have a, I have weeks off, weeks without wow. a deadline. I cannot, I cannot say in, in words how happy I am about that. That's fantastic. And joining us is that savant that you know so well, Paul Francis Sullivan. How are you, Sully? I am fine. I'm fine. I, I love it when you call me Sully. Um, I'm here in the luxurious <laughs> Lockdown MLB studios in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. And uh, I am the host of Lockdown MLB, where we talk about baseball all year long. And I just guest hosted uh, five episodes of another podcast, which is a movie minute podcast. And Dean, I bet you would love the movie minute genre where they the, each episode, they break down one minute of a movie, and by the end, you've gone through an entire deep dive of a film. I did one for Bull Durham Minute, and I just hosted five minutes for Silverado. Oh, what a great the, film. Yeah, it's and I did five. one of the five, great underrated films. Uh, I love that movie. Criminally underrated film, which became classic example of a film that was not a hit in the box office. No. But found its audience... On, on home video and repeat viewing and cable. And the cast was magnificent, just not big stars at the time. So some people may not understand what a minute by minute podcast is. So literally, literally, oops, I hear it clicking. Um, I think that was just my eyebrows. Okay. Um, you do a podcast one episode per minute yes. of a film. When Literally. I did Bull Durham, there was 108 episodes because it was a 108-minute-long film. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and I've, there was a bunch of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, The Godfather, a lot of these films have these. I did one for Bull Durham because that's my favorite baseball movie. And sometimes they have rotating hosts, like for a movie. So, you know, they'll get a bunch of us to each do five or ten. And I just did one for Silverado, as I said, which is a film, the, the film that Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the Lawrence screenplay. Kasdan, yep. He wrote the screenplay to, to Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, and became a very successful director on his own right. He was coming off a big hit with The Big Chill at the time, and he wanted to make an old-fashioned Western. 
And the cast that included Kevin Klein, Scott Glenn, Danny Glover, uh, what should have been an Oscar-nominated performance by Brian Dennehy, um, mm. Linda oh, Hunt. Yes. Linda Hunt? Uh, Linda Hunt. You're forgetting, you're forgetting someone. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I, Jeff Goldblum. And, and one of the most interesting Kevin Costner performances ever. There you go. Before yes. he became a star, where he was being kind of the goofy... The comic relief of the film, yeah, and he steal. Well, then he's the biggest. The is the biggest. Not just yeah, he's mentioned that film. He's a he's a wonderful performance, but Kevin Costner is so great as the goofy one. <laughs> and I remember when the Untouchables came out, uh, two or three years later, people were excited about it. it was Robert De Niro and Sean Connery. I was like. The dude from the from Silverado's the star, and he yeah. has never ever given a performance like the one he did in Silverado, where he's goofy, he's laughing, he's infectious, and I, you know what? It's kind of like Sean Penn never really gave us another Fast Time at Richmond High, and I wonder. Well, that's if such it- an iconic mm. role. Although he was yeah. kind of a goofball, and we were no angels. I mean, he kind of got back to that sort of innocent. But we never got another one of these from Costner, ever. That's interesting that you met. And by the way, Lawrence Kasdan also directed probably my favorite all-time neo-noir. It's interesting that you mentioned, Paul, that he wanted to make a classic Western because he set out to make a classic film noir, and boy, did he smash that out of the park with Body Heat, Heat, which I've spoken about before. Uh, Just an incredibly well-done film. You're talking there about some performances and and the, the people you just listed. I was just listening to a podcast in the car on the way back to get home to here on with Ray Liotta. So uh-huh. it was an interview uh, uh, that Ray did with um, Terry, with Terry on, uh, yeah, yeah, for I Fresh Air. And can too. I yeah. encourage people to just go back and find that? Uh, well, it's it's been released now, so it, it's in feed right now. And um, and uh, just want to mark the uh, mark that put a little pin in that. And just um, say thank you, Ray, for everything that you did because oh, yeah. he created almost the genre of his own, didn't he? He was like, if you needed a character, it's like we need someone like Ray Liotta. You know, it was one of those sort of things. We needed a role like Ray. You know, but that sort of a thing. He was that intense and, and yet and menacing, and and yet he was in another Costner film where he played a very gentle, loving character as Shoeless Joe Jackson in Field of Dreams. That's why. That's and why for, I thought of you, Paul. And for yes. many people, that was probably their introduction to Ray Liotta because he was Could in be. something wild and some other films beforehand. But Field of Dreams was a massive hit and helped make him be someone that Scorsese could cast in Goodfellas. But uh, so yeah, Paul, is there a, is there a casting story for him getting the Goodfellas role because he was definitely the new face well, there? So. Yeah, well, the Goodfellas, which was based on the book called Wise Guy, was. Nick Pelleggi. Nick There was, uh, Scorsese was coming off, he had had a, ironically, a slump in his career where he was making some of the best films of his career, but they were box office duds Mm. uh, with um, Raging Bull and the King of Comedy, or two films I would consider his downfall, (laughs) you know, two masterpieces. But he reestablished himself with um, the, the hit that was The Color of Money. And so that gave him, and and he got a lot of positive or got a lot of publicity for Last Temptation. But um, he, this was a hot property, this book. And casting De Niro and Pesci, uh, Pesci was now considered box office because he was in the Lethal Weapon films. Mm. Uh, so the lead role, the studio wanted another star. They wanted Tom Cruise or um, Charlie Sheen or Val Kilmer or um, Sean Penn. And to Scorsese's wonderful credit, and we'll we'll tie back to the offer in a way when mm-hmm. we start talking about the offers, the uh, directors sticking to their guns, uh, metaphorically, of course. Um, there's the Scorsese knew that if you had a major star playing the role of Henry Hill, then of course he's going to do the right thing, or of course he's going to go to the FBI. But if it was an actor who had a sense of unpredictability and the audience didn't have tons of he's the good guy baggage to him, that would make his story more compelling. Uh, Spielberg made the same decision casting Liam Neeson in over a superstar as as Schindler. Um, But Ray Liotta, who had 
because of something wild had this reputation of being like this kind of potential crazy lunatic who at one point was being whispered as a potential joker in case Jack Nicholson bowed out of wow. Batman. Wow. Mm. Um, that was that would have been a way out there risky decision back in 89, but he was approached as uh, in case we can't get Nicholson, can we, you know, have you in our back pocket? And uh, Leoto desperately wanted to work with Scorsese and lobbied for it. In fact, was coming up to Scorsese at like, it may, it may have been Connor, maybe one of the big film festivals where they were showing The Last Temptation of Christ and lobbied hard for the role. And Scorsese already knew who he was because of the Jonathan Demme film, Something Wild, and um, considered him and fought for him. And uh, of course, De Niro gets top billing in yeah. Goodfellas. Because yeah. it's, it was easier to sell Robert De Niro in a Martin Scorsese gangster film as De Niro became, you know, reestablished his box office appeal with uh, with the Untouchables. So there's it was one of those things where a bunch of things came together. But it was a, it was kind of brave to hand the car keys over to Leota for that part. But it turned into, I think, Scorsese's masterpiece. No, no offense to Rachel yeah. Bowl or some of his other great films, but. You really can't think, turn it off. That's another yeah. one. Like like yeah, the, the film that yeah. we're going to be discussing. Yeah. When it's yeah. on that's, um, and one of the few times, I think, Paul, where uh, voiceover actually works in, yeah. in the film. So yeah, Ray, I course, think the three greatest course. use of voiceovers in a movie are probably um, Sunset Boulevard, Shawshank Redemption, mm. and Goodfellas, where mm. the 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 voiceover... Not Blade Runner. You're not, not putting Blade Runner in there, Ken. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I'm not. <laughs> that, that, yeah. Although the Harrison Ford's Blade Runner uh, voiceover, which was added at the last minute, you can actually hear Harrison Ford's eyes rolling as he's reading. <laughs> yes, I know. He hated the. Everybody hated the idea except the studio. So yeah, uh, but uh, Scorsese told Ray he didn't want him to meet Henry Hill. Right, didn't want him to meet before the film, but he did. He was handed. Uh, Ray was handed a box of cassette tapes because it was back in the eighties. And it was all the original uh, recordings that Pelleggi did with Henry Hill uh, when he wrote the book. Yeah. And so although he didn't meet him, he did have, he said, you know, I don't know, I, I can't remember what it was. I don't even know if he said how many hours it was, but you can imagine it'd be a lot. So he had this guy's voice in his head. Um, he's, he tells the story of driving around in his mother's car playing the, the, these interviews with, uh, with Henry on cassette in the car. So there you go. That was his research. Well, rest in peace, Mr. Mm -hmm. Leota. Yeah. I had the privilege of working on a film that he, it was one of my first casting jobs um, uh, that he was in. It was a horror movie. It was it was not, not a great one, but um, it was really cool to be on a project that he was on. Anyway, so let's uh, pivot a little bit. So it is Emmy time. And what that means right now is that we're getting ready to nominate the nominations. So I've been getting lots of stuff in the mail for my consideration. I got this nice shiny booklet from Netflix uh, promoting the films that they're that they want to see nominated from Emmy. I got something from Paramount. And one thing I know that is definitely a good contender to be nominated to be nominated for an Emmy is another hot property. Uh, called The Offer, which is based on the, well, Paul, why don't you explain? Because it's a little bit, it's, we're going to try to make it not inside baseball, uh, but it is definitely inside the spaghetti factory of uh, Italian. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's about the making of The Godfather. The, the miniseries is about the making, or, or we're supposed to call them limited series, right? Uh, the limited series is about the making of The Godfather. Uh, but it has a it has kind of an interesting slant to it in that we have heard the making of the Godfather in documentaries and books where it focuses on Francis Coppola and his role of trying to make this movie and the intense struggle it was. And we've also heard from the point of view of Robert Evans, who was the subject of the of the kid stays in the picture, both the book and the documentary. And um, by the way, you want to hear a great voiceover, uh, <laughs> Robert Evans' uh, voiceover of the documentary, The Kid Stays in the Picture, is... Uh, He's the, a fascinating character, isn't yeah. he? He is, he yeah. is. And, and, when it came out uh, years ago, and I was just like... Yeah, mm, it, it's amazing. Separate. 
bit from the reality, but I don't know. It was a, and I didn't Robert care. Robert Evans just, at the was time a, was the, the executive the, the producer head, and the head of the head of Paramount. At the the head of Paramount. Yeah. And yeah. Paramount was in bad, bad straits, as was the entire film industry at the time. It's actually kind of a similar place as it is now that the studios were not making as many uh, feature films and television was taking over. And Evans uh, was in charge of trying to bring hits. And he came up with three giant hits, which were Rosemary's Baby, Love Story, and finally hit the jackpot with The Godfather. But the interesting thing is, and what I enjoy, what I find interesting about this project is neither one of those are the main characters of it. The main character Hmm. is a producer named Albert Ruddy, now, The Godfather's opening credit says Paramount Pictures presents an Albert S. Ruddy production, The Godfather. <laughs> and then when it won the Oscar for Best Picture, the person who came up to collect the Oscar was Albert S. Ruddy. And so, and he is kind of a forgotten figure in the mm-hmm. history of the story. He became a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the story <laughs> of The Godfather, and yet he was the producer of it and did not, was not involved in any of the other Coppola films although went on to win another Oscar much later in his career for producing the film Million Dollar Baby with, with uh, Clint Eastwood. Mm. Yeah, Clint. But it was told from his point of view uh, of the crisis of making the movies. And, and I found, and again, jumping ahead a little bit, in the, in the, in the uh, limited series itself, they don't do a lot of recreation of scenes from the movie and showing the hardships of the creative process of shooting certain scenes. It's told from the point of view of the producer who is trying to put out not an occasional gas stove fire, but raging infernos that are going on (laughs) around him from from completely inflexible human beings. And uh, it's a side of the Godfather story, which I who have read a lot about the making of the Godfather didn't know many of these things. I didn't hear from this point of view. So it's, well, it, because I don't think many of these things, I don't think a lot of these things. It's an unreliable are, narrator. It's an it, unreliable. Yeah, narrator. Yeah, it, it is a very interesting way to look at it. And um, so I know mean, Dean hasn't watched this, but, you know, they cast Miles Teller, who you know, who Miles Teller is. Whiplash. Uh, Whiplash, and he's in. He's oh, in, oh, you're asking me? Of course, yeah. I know. Yeah, Whiplash, oh, okay. and he's, no, uh, he's soon in the to top. Be, he's in the Top I'm, Gun Maverick. I'm about to see him maybe today. If he's not, a, maybe he's this afternoon a, or tomorrow. In I loved it. Top Gun I Maverick. Loved it. But anyway, you besides, did. I did. Yeah. But so, yeah. so he's playing Albert Ruddy, and it's so interesting to watch this actor try to take on the period. He's definitely. I mean, compared to his performance and anything else I've seen him on, he does seem to be channeling some sort of flatness. Paul, wouldn't you say kind of a Steve McQueen? I don't know what it is. Yeah, I think he's trying to create a 70s cool that, you know, remember one of Albert Ruddy's good friends was Clint Eastwood. So he's almost trying to create like a, all this is stuff is going around and I'm trying to keep, stay even keel in 70s school that's, there. That's funny you say that, Lisa, and uh, about the flatness and the channeling because I got that even from the preview mm-hmm. Yeah, about him. And, I was and, like, no, I didn't, I didn't think of it at the time, but when you said it, I went, oh, yeah, I got that from the, uh, even just from the preview. I can't remember who we were talking to. I think I was talking to my, my friend Liz Benjamin, who's a, who's a writer-producer, and we were like, with any other actor, it wouldn't work. It would be just way too wooden and mm. and just too placid. But there's something about Miles Teller that he does. It's something about the sculpture of his face and how he's just sort of taking everything in and trying not to, you know, jump off a bridge because all this stuff is going on around him. But it definitely, especially in the first couple of episodes, it kind of really fast tracks the story. Yeah. Where one minute Albert Ruddy is, what was he? Uh, what was he? Uh, he was working for Rand as a like, defense contract. And then next thing you know, he's like, I have an idea for a show called Hogan Zeros. Yeah, Hogan he Zeros his- is a big hit. It's been on for five years. <laughs> right, Wait a minute, right. I thought you were... <laughs> yeah, it's like because his neighbor is an actor, so his neighbor drags him to the Chateau Marmont. And he just, you know, he runs, you know, he I went there for lunch last time I was in LA with you, Lisa. And he sort of remarkably makes friends with all these people at this Chateau Marmont party. And uh, whoopsie daisy, he becomes a producer and sells Hogan's Heroes and has an amazing girlfriend. And so they really fast track the beginning. But what we are. It sounds like Supermensch. That's the same story, isn't it? You know, Supermensch? No, I don't. Have you seen that? The documentary Mm -hmm. or read the book Mm -mm. about the, this is the manager of, uh, 
most famously is the manager of, of Alice Helen. Cooper. Oh, okay. And, and, and stumbles into just these series of adventures, um, ends up managing all these bands, accidentally invents the concept of a celebrity chef, just as you do. Oh, how funny. And then ends up cooking for the Dalai Lama, um, as you do. So uh, I highly recommend the documentary and the book. Look it but, up, but, Supermensch. But if you've it, never Produced seen... by, of all people, Mike Myers. How about that? Oh, yeah, no. Didn't he also represent Helen Reddy? I'm pretty sure that. Uh, um, yes, I think he. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. you're thinking of uh, the Canadian songstress who was Anne. Oh, Anne big hit. Anne Murray. Anne Murray. Anne Murray. Okay. Thank anyway. you, Paul. Okay. If you have not seen The Godfather, you will have a really tough time following <laughs> this and understanding the significance of all these little Easter eggs and all these little things that happen because, you know, you meet Alan Ruddy and then right away you meet Mario Puzo played mm-hmm. by, go ahead. Played by, Mario Puzo is played by the brilliant Patrick Gallo, who some of you may remember he's had, uh, was in um, the, the Irishman and several other things. He also has the, the distinction of being one of my best friends on the planet Earth. I'm basically a member of my family. Uh, was in the that. film that I directed, I'll Believe You. And we used to do comedy together. Um, and he was, talk- on a, he was on our podcast. He was on he's the on, podcast. Oh, that's right. He's on the podcast. Yeah, he, right. he was talking about uh, Michael Kenneth Williams' death. But anyway, so you meet Mario Puzo and you start to meet all of these players but you don't you know if you're not steeped in the lore of that time um, what was that famous famous book um mo- motorcycles and jack oh it said oh it was uh, uh, easy, and riders and ra- easy riders and raging bulls yes easy riders and raging bulls book right yeah i read that era. that was a fantastic book oh, it's, right. one best, book. it's one of the best books about movies but yes. a big a big part of what the the book was about was the studio system basically that had been set up by like the Jack Warners and the, the you know, the, the Xanax and all these people who were these big, huge, like um, the Zuckers, all these great movie moguls. They had all retired and then they sold their studios to these corporations who had no idea what to do with a movie studio. And there's a whole, pl- there's a whole segment of the offer, which is about the conflict between the corporation that owns Paramount Pictures, who just looks at it as a line on their ledger, and the creative so en- people en- Engulf and Devour wasn't that them? Well, yeah, they're from inside of the movie. Yes, Engulf <laughs> and Western was called Engulf and Devour in the movie inside Sorry, of the movie. The airplane but um, but that whole conflict between uh, the this corporation not understanding movie people and the movie people not understanding the corporate people is a huge part of the offer. And if you don't understand that power struggle that was happening in the late sixties, early seventies, a lot of these scenes will just fly over your head. Like especially the scenes involving um, Colin Hanks and um, uh, uh, Bern Gorman would just be so confusing. Like why, who are they? Why is this happening? Right. But a lot of these, um, so a lot of these roles obviously are iconic roles and it's very interesting to see the actors and how they make their choices on not to do um, impersonations um, that like you might see on Saturday night live or something, mm -hmm. but really to go deeper um, and yet seem exactly like the characters. So Dan Fogler plays Francis Ford Coppola, Coppola, Oh, my goodness. He's just channeling his, you know, that passion that he has, that unreasonable kind of baby man. You know, he wants what he wants and, uh, you know, stamps his foot and has tantrums if he can't get it. Um, Yet, I mean, you just he's just channeling him so beautifully and seamlessly. And of course, our friend Patrick Gallo, I think, is just he's hilarious. He's he's hilarious. And 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 you know, heartwarming, but the person who really steals this series and I just can't get enough of him is British Matthew good. Yep. Who has transformed himself into Robert Evans. Mm -hmm. Now there are a lot of actors out there who, 
Now, if you're if you're a millennial or zillennial or whatever millennial, you probably don't know who Robert Evans is, but he is somebody who in the uh, you know Hollywood legacy is a well-known personality. The cadence of his voice, his um, his machismo, his bravado. I mean, it's been made fun of many times. Um, and what Matthew Good does is, but he doesn't. He just uh, interprets it. He embodies him just like on a cellular level. I mean, what do you think of his performance, Paul? Uh, I think he's there's we had mentioned that the, the narration in the kid stays in the picture, which is the biography of Robert Evans, which is the get the audio book and put aside the time. It's one of the most entertaining things you'll ever hear in your life. <laughs> and he has a very specific cadence. Was it great working with Nicholson? No. Would I do it again? Yes. Was it a disaster? Yes. Was it the happiest time of my life? You bet. Like, so like, it, it's, everything he says is the most important thing that has ever been said. Um, and you also get the sense that he is an unbelievably unreliable narrator. Uh, like so, so Coppola didn't even want gangsters in. I said, hey, Francis, why not have Al Pacino? You know, he just sort of makes himself sound like he came up with every great idea uh, that's ever been made in Hollywood at that time. And what Matthew Good does with the performance, though, um, I was very nervous whenever I when I saw someone was playing him because he could very easily just stick out as a silly character. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and he just he gets the arrogance. He, he does a version of the voice, but doesn't do it in impersonation. Right. Um, Justin Chambers, who plays Marlon Brando, kind of does the same thing. He's not as major a part in the film, uh, but it's the same thing. You could so easily just do an impersonation. But Matthew Good just says, OK, what's the essence of him? He's in charge of reviving this dead company. So he has to do with a certain amount of bravado, but he also has an intense amount of insecurities um, because he was a failed actor. His wife uh, left him for Steve McQueen. You know, he has all these things that have that would uh, bury his ego. And but he can't he can't he has to be the showman. He wants to he does not want to be a corporate type. He wants to be a old time executive filled with coke and sex. Yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, and so he he just does a great job of doing that and bringing humanity to a part that could either be the Jar Jar Binks of this production <laughs> or um, okay. or no, just yeah, kind of like a, a stick out like a sore thumb, exaggerated character or mm. trying to find too much pathos in him mm. where you know, he's so Robert Evans is still whenever he shows up you light up because he's hilarious, yeah. but it's not like, okay, here comes the clown. Um, there was a movie that came out in the mid nineties called the late shift, which was based upon the book about the shift of Johnny Carson to David Letterman and uh, Jay Leno. And it's a very similar film to the offer in that it's back behind the scenes stuff. And you had wonderful performances by the two actors who played Letterman and uh, Leno and also by Kathy Bates and John Balaban. But unfortunately for the role of Johnny Carson, they got Rich Little, the impersonator, to do oh. a Johnny Carson impersonation. And every time Carson shows up, it's like, okay, now we're having a clown. Now we're not having an actor. And right. it very and it, and it was it kind of hamstrung that film as opposed to this film where they didn't go in that direction and they made this critical part very believable. And also the way that he uses his body. I mean, we talked about his voice that he really just gets that at like you did so well, Paul, that adenoidal kind of mm -hmm. and, you know, and also that old Hollywood kind of dialect. But what Matthew Good, Good does with his body, like the way he holds his drink, right, the way he he wears his clothes, they just don't feel like costumes as you know, some of the other people who are in period costumes, you can see that they feel kind of uncomfortable in the hairdo or, or the whatever. But he's just at such ease with these three piece leisure suits or whatever they are, these powder blue suits and and the glasses and how he pulls up in his whatever it was that he was driving like the alfa romeo and just just the swagger the way he swaggers when he walks i mean it's just such a wonderful thing to see an actor just using everything 
And I want to actually go back to the other performance. We were bringing up Miles Teller earlier. Um, first of all, I, I actually, I think um, uh, Miles Teller is wonderful in Whiplash. I haven't seen everything. I've not seen the new Top Gun film. But, um, but I think that him being a little more, I didn't want to use the word, I think wooden. I think kind of more like holding his cards close to his chest. You couldn't have him going toe to toe with uh, Robert Evans in in intensity. In fact, in the course of the film, Al Ruddy's character, you know, Miles Teller's character, butts heads with Robert Evans and Byrne Gorman as these kind of both completely over the top forces of nature for the the corporate side of the film. Dan Fogler's Francis Coppola who is this super impassioned, everything is the most important thing. And Giovanni Ribisi's Joe Colombo from The Mob, who's this really, you know, again, larger than life. And he has to pinball back and forth in there. And he has, if he was trying to match all of their energy, it would be, I think, it would be too much in each scene. He has to be constantly the, all right, I'll get it done. All right, I'll get it done. All right, I'll get it done. Instead of trying to, so he has to have a performance which is a little more reserved. Otherwise, right. the otherwise he would just be Gilbert Gottfried by the end of this. Uh, <laughs> you know, again, may he rest in peace. But you, you know, I can't because he has to deal with the mob. <laughs> Francis Coppola not wanting to compromise anything, out of which remember at this point in Coppola's career he had not had a hit movie. He was considered a complete liability as a director. And they wanted this to be a low-budget film. And so every decision he made made the budget go through the roof. Um, and and Ruddy having to sort of spin all of those plates at the same time needed a more reserved uh, production. And also allowed for uh, Juno Temple, who wears the 70s clothes as if she was born to be in the 70s clothes. Oh, I wish she was the one I was thinking who I feel like. Oh, really? I think she... I mean, she oh, looks I, fantastic, but I feel like I notice what she's um, wearing um, a lot more than some of the others. But anyway. But but allows her to be kind of the fixer for Albert Ruddy. Uh, right. Her role as Betty, uh, as Ruddy's assistant, who knows, seems to know everything before anything happens. So. So I've struggled with stomach issues for a long time from food sensitivities to bouts of IBS to bloating and just general discomfort. I've been there. So I'm always looking for things to improve my digestion proactively. And my friends at Plantiva have something great that has really helped and it's called Digestive. Digestive is a product that helps with bloating, after meal discomfort, digestive upset, and just those occasional stomach aches and nausea, and it helps keep you regular. This product has a blend of herbs that helps break down plant fibers and fats and proteins into smaller units called peptides and amino acids, and it improves the nutritional value of fats and oils. But all I care about is that I feel much better when I'm taking it. Dr. Morrissey and his whole family really know what they are doing. So why don't you try it for yourself? Go to plantiva.com for your exclusive discount code. That's plantiva.com slash killer casting. It, it does accurately perform. Uh, it does accurately portray the fact that Coppola had to um, really fight hard for, you know, not just an unknown like um, Al Pacino, but uh, also the idea of getting uh, uh, Marlon Brando, who was considered box mm -hmm. office poison at the time. Um, and, uh, to, to well, but, but, but but a problem on set as well, right? Yes, so, yeah, it was office box office poison, poison and was considered and trouble. Be, yeah, and trouble. And so, like Ernest Borgnine was thrown around as a potential, or Anthony Quinn. And no, no disrespect mm. to either one of those actors. Obviously, both Oscar-winning actors, fine actors. But it's difficult to imagine. You know, now it's difficult to imagine anyone, but Brando. But they had to have Brando do a screen test and promise. 
you know, that a bond would be put up to avoid mm-hmm. any of the, what they call the shenanigans. And they portrayed a scene where they did, the head of Gulf and Western was adamant that, that Brando's name couldn't even be brought up in meetings. And Coppola did uh, what they were saying was a costume test. And, um, and Brando basically created the look of Don Vito. He put shoe polish mm. in his hair, put cotton in his mouth. And um, uh, the person who's named um, Charles Bluthorn, who's played by uh, Bern Gorman in the, in the offer, saw the screen test not knowing it was Brando. And uh, he said, who is this? And he used a word that Italians don't like to hear about themselves. Who is this on my screen right now? And they said, that's Brando. I said, that's Brando? And like they were so mesmerized by his screen test that it won them over. Um, there were some things that were fast and loose about the casting um, in the offer where, again, this is the even the credit in the opening credits says, based upon Albert S. Ruddy's recollections of The Godfather, which, again, he may not be a reliable narrator. This may be just the way that he remembers. Uh, in a one of the making of documentaries, they show footage that Coppola knew very early on that he wanted um, Al Pacino as Michael. There was a film he was trying to make in the early 70s. He made a film called The Rain People in the late 60s, early 70s, that featured James Caan and Robert Duvall. So he got to know the two of them, and he knew he wanted them as Sonny and as um, Tom Hagen. And he was going to make a film, the funding fell through, but he had met Al Pacino. He wanted to cast him in a role. He had seen him in a play. And the funding fell through, but he knew Al. And he, when he was first hired to direct The Godfather, he flew up Pacino and Duval and Robert uh, James Kahn, and with 16 millimeters started shooting scenes with The Godfather with the three of them. And as James Kahn says in the interview, uh, it cost Francis four corned beef sandwiches out of the budget to make because they just loved working with him. And then they proceeded to do a long casting process for Paramount, of which James Kahn said, which they could have just skipped and just got us four more corned beef sandwiches because it was exactly who Francis wanted. Now, the the show, The Offer, makes it seem that that Pacino didn't know that uh, Pacino and Coppola didn't know each other. And um, also makes it seem like Coppola never wanted James Kahn. Yeah. He's like a... Uh, he acquiesced to have him. So, you know, they're playing a little around with that. It but- was true that the studio at one point suggested James Kahn as Michael. Be- but the reason they did that is they knew that Coppola wanted to cast James Kahn in the film because Kahn was in his pre- one of the main characters to the Rain People, his previous film. And James Kahn had just done the film Brian's Song, which was a really beloved TV film and turned James Kahn into a, a star. And so they're like, oh, well, we're fine with James Kahn. If you want to cast him as Michael, they thought that was a good compromise to Coppola. And um, and and when Coppola was considering that, he did cast someone else in the role of Sonny. Um, but then when he finally got uh, the, the studio to agree to for Pacino and um, they he had to fire the actor who was going to play Sonny if, you know, if James Kahn was playing Michael. And they had also cast Robert De Niro, who did an incredible audition for Sonny that exists on YouTube. <laughs> if you see it, it's an yeah. unbelievable audition. Yeah. They yeah. cast him as a role uh, in a smaller role of Paulie, the guy who eventually gets killed when they say, leave the gun, take the cannoli. And they worked out a deal that while Pacino was being, you know, not was not cast as Michael yet, he accepted a role in another movie. And so Paramount worked out a deal that said, all right, release Pacino for that contract and cast De Niro in his place, uh, and which is what they did. But uh, the film kind of doesn't, the film doesn't really show that Coppola's real choices were Duval as Tom Hagen, Pacino as Michael, and James yeah. Conn as Sonny. It kind of plays fast and loose with that, which is- You mean the series, not the, the film? The series, I'm saying Already the confusing series. enough. But, but Dean, they have this actor, Anthony Ippolito, playing Al Pacino, this young Al Pacino. He is so, it's eerie. 
the way that he just gets it down and they do a really smart thing in the series is that they don't literally show him playing um, any of the iconic scenes, you know, they, they don't, they don't shoot. They, they don't show them shooting the actual iconic scenes, but sometimes just the beginning and just the end. And so it's really cool. So you're not, you know, you're not conflating them in your mind. You're not comparing them in your mind, but it's, but um, there are some. Do they do they do the scene in the diner when he shoots uh, Salazar? Well, well, they 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 don't, they show you the behind the scenes of shooting that. They don't right. show the scene itself, but you see one of the Paramount executives, played by Bern Gorman, coming up to Pacino, who are, he was the one who was against the casting of Pacino. He came up to him to tell him how great he is, but Pacino mm-hmm. was basically still in character because he's such an intense actor. And there's mm-hmm. a shot of what's the actor who plays Pacino's name again? Anthony Polito. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anthony Polito. Um, he kind of looks up at uh the at the the paramount executive with a look that basically says, I'm still in character, shut the F up without saying it. <laughs> but the way he was shot and the way he was lit, he looks exactly like Pacino in the scene where he shoots the Turk and oh, he yeah. shoots. And then mm-hmm. they also yeah. show and the Francis- police chief, yeah. And they show Francis Ford Coppola's character telling the prop guy, hey, when you hide the gun behind the toilet, don't put it in the place where we rehearsed it. Put it, you know, mm. so he's really got to look for it and get a sweat to like, what, where the fuck's the gun, you know? And, um, and yeah. they do they do things like you'll see like the bed with the horse's head, but they don't show like it's just in the background mm-hmm. or yeah. when there's a yeah. scene where Talia Sher is, is upset over the domestic violence scene, you see her running from the set, but you don't see them actually shooting that scene, which it's is, a, I think a, really a, smart yeah. because yeah. it's, you know, it's, yeah, they, it'd be really swimming uphill to try to replicate um, the Godfather scenes. Mm, but you don't need to. I mean, the, the scenes are so iconic that you've only got to hint at them to get it. Don't you? It's like that. Uh, what's that psychological principle called where, you know, you just, what's it called? it's a german thing anyway like if you see a cat's tail poking out from you know you look down the kitchen you look at the kitchen doorway and you can see a cat's tail you don't need to see the rest of the cat to know the cat's there you know what i mean right same thing with this you just have to show the set and you go oh look that's the scene from the diner right okay. but again yeah. if you don't know those scenes this oh, is yeah, not no. gonna help you at no, all understand what's significant but to take an accused from another uh lucrative paramount intellectual property which is star trek um and by the way we're recording this on the 40th anniversary of the release of wrath of khan so uh, happy wrath of khan day everybody um but all like you take all the star trek films or everything they don't they assume you've seen the show they don't say this Mm. is kirk this is spock they assume (laughs) if you're seeing star trek the motion picture which i just took my sons to see in the theater because they did a re-release of it and they loved it or if you're going to see one of those uh we assume you know this and like you're not going to sit down and say i'm going to watch a 10-part making of the godfather limited series but i've never seen the godfather so i'm first (laughs) going to watch the show and it's interesting that our, 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 you know, our boys are watching it to a degree with us as we're watching it because they know Patrick very, very mm. well, who plays Mario Busso, mm. and he's so funny in his scenes. It's just wonderful seeing someone you know. There's a scene where he has writer's block, and he's the and the and uh, Miles Teller comes to visit him where he's writing, and he's floating on a raft in a swimming pool with a coronet pot full of ziti that he's just eating off of that he's resting on his stomach and when patrick could very easily what patrick could do patrick's not a small man (laughs) and um and he's just so insecure about uh you know about the uh uh you know his role and you know the boys will love seeing scenes like that but then like at one point (laughs) boy maddie just says why are they trying to find a horse's head? <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm glad they didn't show. They just shoot, you know, they, they they did go through the fact that props built an incredibly terrible looking horse's head that Coppola said, there's no way I'm shooting that. I'd rather cut the because, scene. Yeah, they ended up using a real one. They, they? A real head from a, a real meat head. packing company that used horse meat 
to feed, to create dog food. And there was a horse head that was there that one of the Teamsters was able to sneak onto the set and that they painted um, uh, the, they had the real horse that they shot the scene and then they painted like a, uh, a mark on the horse's head so it would match. Right. Uh, because a lot of people <laughs> yeah. were stickler for continuity. <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 a very underrated performance there by Cartoon, I thought as well. You know, oh, yeah. In that, yes. In that scene. Hmm. Yes. That was the name of the horse, folks. I know Cartoon. it was. You see, you, you, no, you I'm saying for the that. folks. I know oh, that. I know right, that you right, know. Right. I'm, people are going, what? What is Cartoon? Well, there are well, so many great turns in this. I mean, Giovanni Ribisi as this mobster. Uh, so wonderful. And, it's, and, and, and I'll tell you something about Giovanni Ribisi that he, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but it was, it was, you know, it's, it's weird to see someone who I remember as essentially a teen actor now playing someone with a comb over and a gut. Uh, <laughs> it's very weird because I just turned 50 that I have to think about that, but um, that he, again, he could play this as a cartoonish mobster. And while he's very funny in the, he has some of the funniest lines in the whole film, uh, he plays it with, he's, he's scary and has humanity to him, yeah. which, which is perfect for The Godfather, because that's a film where these mobsters have ounces of humanity to them. And so I think it was, it was interesting. Well, there's something about his performance, too, that has a little bit of pathos. Like, there's a real sadness to him, like... He knows the world that he's in. And uh, I, I don't know. I just love the energy that he brought to it. I um, mean, you know, Jake Cannavale is in it, too, as his his young muscle um, bodyguard. And he's great. Is he related and, to Bobby? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what, is his son. What, what yeah. relationship is his, his son? son. Right? Yeah. Uh -huh. And then Lou Ferrigno has, a you know, his presence. Lou is Ferrigno? Lou wonderful. Ferrigno plays one of the, the guys in the mob who in real life was kind of mobbed up, but also a former wrestler named Lenny Montana, who at the last minute had to be cast in the role of Luca Brazzi and uh. was not an actor and was so nervous shooting his scenes with Brando that he kept screwing up his lines of which Coppola came up with the idea. Well, then why don't we show him rehearsing his lines during the wedding? Cause they shot his scene with Brando before they shot the wedding. And so they were able to get him rehearsing as if he's so nervous, he's trying to figure out what to say and therefore use one of his flubbed takes that you see that in the movie, the one where he's flubs it. That's, that's a blooper where you're watching a blooper and Coppola, cool. had the, Coppola had the foresight to turn that into a positive that how do we get this guy's nervousness being in front of Brando? Well, this shows how the, this huge scary guy is scared of this older man just immediately demonstrates his power. And so, mm -hmm. and in a little bit of stunt casting to show how big and huge this guy must have been, they cast the freaking Hulk. <laughs> and he's so great. He's wonderful. He's really He doesn't wonderful. have hardly any lines, but just his presence and the way he's listening. And it's just, it's just really great. Um, mm. As we sort of wrap it up, I do want to shout out um, Stephanie Koenig, who plays great. She's great. Andrea She's Eastman. Great. So Andrea Eastman was the the casting director for the Godfather film. And so she gets to have a, a role in this. And I've known Stephanie for a really long time, you know, um, I think that she took classes for me at one point, but anyway, it was so great to see her in this role. And I thought that she captures um, that studio casting director, how you're trying to balance so many powerful people who are in your ear saying, don't ever cast Brando. He's a liability. And then the other, you know, and then you have the creatives, your director and the creative producer saying, we've got to get Brando. And I just thought that she just navigates that world. And then she's just got a great scene with Miles Teller. Um, it's just the two of them. And, and she's explaining that, you know, this world that they're in, how does she say it, Paul? She's like, you know, you know, you're so passionate, you know, that you want Al Pacino in this movie. And I am passionate about that too. And, and nobody else in the whole world can understand that unless you're in this business, you know, nobody mm -hmm. can understand why you would go through so much shit to get this guy in your film, but you know, it's the right thing to do. 
And unless you're somebody who can understand that you don't belong in this business, you know, it's just a great. Great. And and it and it, it's, she has a great monologue. She has a couple of great monologues in the film. She has a great scene with Juno Temple, and she has a great scene with Miles Teller, uh, and kind of encapsulates a little bit of what I was saying before about that period of time when these corporations were taking over the studio system and not understanding why are we going to spend X amount of money when we could just get this for cheaper. And she has to. She, I mean, the film probably could have been told from her point of view. You know, that, uh, yeah. that you know, if the reasons for these fights and, you know, they portray Coppola as being completely uh, unbending in a lot of his like, you know, unwilling to compromise anything, mm-hmm. which very well, you know, Coppola portrays himself that way in in the interviews about it. There is, by the way, there's a great moment for uh, students of that era of film. When uh, Ruddy comes, Albert Ruddy, the Miles Teller character, is trying to convince Coppola to direct the film. No one wants to direct the film. They know they have to have an Italian direct the film because of the controversy around the book. So they couldn't have a non-Italian direct it. But there weren't a lot of Italian and American directors at the time. And Coppola at the time was creating his own production company in San Francisco. And Miles and Miles Teller's character had to come up and convince Coppola to take this job. And you see lurking in the background, they cut to him, he has no lines, but you see one of the other filmmakers who's hanging out with Coppola, who's the skinny kid in a plaid shirt and a thin beard and a mop of hair. And they essentially got someone who looked exactly like George Lucas, 1971, to be <laughs> eavesdropping in on the conversation. Zotrope, Zotrope. They don't say yeah. they don't have a scene or say, George, get back to writing that script and stop writing that Flash Gordon space movie. Nobody wants to see space movies, George. Anyway, back to the No, it's just it was like a little Easter egg. If you knew that what American Zoetrope was, it was this sort of and there's a point they could do a whole podcast on what could have mm. been with American zoetrope. Um, but uh, it was, they were trying to create their own Shangri-La of filmmakers in San Francisco. And it was led by Coppola and George Lucas. And they were out of money. They had no money. And Coppola took the Godfather because he was broke. It was a gig. It was a paying gig. Mm-hmm. And if there's a lesson out there for you people, take the paying gigs because <laughs> you could make the freaking Godfather right. if you're good enough. By accident. Sure. Yeah. Talking about George Lucas, there's an interesting story that his wife was Marcy or Marcia? Marsha. 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 There you go. Marcia, yeah, Marsha Lucas. Yeah. So George, obviously not short of a dollar, but when he went through the divorce, he had to he had to cough up some money and he didn't want to sell, I don't know, it was like property, something like that. But he, anyway, he had this little, he had this little side project going that, mm-hmm. that ended and Steve Jobs knew him. And, and so he ended up, Steve Jobs ended up doing a screwed George with his pants on to get this little company. And I think he gave him 25 million for it, something like that. And that little company was called Pixar. Yep. There you go. How about that? Then you look at uh, John Lasseter of Pixar uh, is one of his first major film credits is creating the uh, in Return of the Jedi, the animation that Admiral Akbar uses to show the Death Star when they're creating their attack sequence. That that was essentially that was a Pixar moment. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Well, uh, I'm really enjoying watching the offer, even yep. though, you know, it's a little bit. Apocryphal. Well, now I'm all fired up to go see yeah, it. I'm just, I've, I've, got, I've, got, I've got to watch that. And I've got to, and just to, to give a shout things. out to the casting director for the offer. The great uh, John Papsidera has cast just just such an put together, such an incredible cast. And of course, famously, it was Army Hammer that was supposed to play <laughs> the Albert yeah. Ruddy. A uh, role, but I think that Miles Teller. I mean, I, I think, think he's, he's so great. great. I think age-wise, I think it's really a good way to go. Um, Dean, did you have something? Uh, just a couple of things before we wrap up, and sure. circling back a little bit too. But Paul mentioned that he'd just done a couple of one-minute pods uh, on on Silverado. 
I don't know if these guys invented the format, but they were certainly one of the first. A couple of Aussie boys did One Minute Heat. So that was, uh, which is a very long film. Yeah. I hope that that you get the chance to do what happened to them, which was on the very last episode after doing 168 minutes or 168 episodes, whatever it was, that they they caught the attention of, uh, of the director of that little film and they happened to do their final episode uh, with the boys in their podcasting studio in Sydney and uh, Michael Mann on the line. Michael so if you, Mann, wow. Well, if I, I you know, get a chance to listen know, to that one, it's a good I, pod. I know another Australian film that had a movie minute podcast was Mad Max Minute, caught the attention of George Miller, who came on to do several episodes oh, wow. um, with them. I will just say one thing for those of you, I, I do that, recommend. That by, the way, that, by the way, Paul, that film was shot. The original, we were talking the original first the one. Original, uh, the original, which, which was called not the, the Road, Road Warrior. Warrior. Not the Road Warrior, but the original Mad Max. Mad Max 1979, yeah. Yeah. I think, was shot most of it within 20 minutes drive of my house. Yeah. Where the car goes through the caravan in uh, in that scene. That was the, my dad's factory was in that in that street in uh, in Altona. Wow. Mm, well, the so original Mad Max. Very local. The original Mad Max had the same budget as any episode of Killer Casting, I believe. But uh, <laughs> but the I think the I think the Road Warrior and Mad Max Fury Road are both masterpieces. I think yeah. Thunderdome is okay. But uh, I want to just say one last thing about the best way to enjoy the offer is if first of all you have to be a fan of The Godfather, of which there are many of us out there. But also don't watch it like it's a documentary. Don't watch it like we're, we're we're hearing a story from a potentially unreliable narrator who in real life is in his 90s and hasn't had his story told. Mm. And that's the point of view that you're watching. If you watch it, I'm seeing the definitive because I caught myself. Going like, but that's not how that happened. That's not how that happened. Well, mm. do you what? It doesn't matter. Let the old mm. man have a say while he's still with us. <laughs> and. I, I enjoy the, there's other movies I could think of, like I love the Oliver Stone film JFK, or I love the film Moneyball with, uh, with Brad Pitt. Yeah. Now, I know JFK has plot holes you can drive a motorcade through. And I know that there are. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> or, or, you, or as a huge baseball fan, there are parts of Moneyball that I want to stand up in the theater going like, um, that's not what happened. <laughs> but if you watch JFK as a mystery film, it's a wonderful movie. If you watch Moneyball as a film about a guy who has to adapt to the world around him, it's a wonderful movie. And if you watch The Offer as here's a crazy Hollywood story about how a great movie almost didn't get made and don't get lost in the minutiae, just get lost in the, the feel of it and the spirit of it. Uh, you'll you'll wind up having a great time. Although Dean, you will be happy to know that they do get the oranges right. So, uh, well, of course, they, <laughs> they, they, yeah, they must. They, yeah. they must. Um, very quickly, by the way, you mentioned Moneyball there, Paul. The Michael Lewis, the author mm-hmm. of Moneyball, has his own podcast that I highly recommend. It's one. Of, it's just. It's a really, really good uh, series of uh, pods. So check that out. Uh, yeah, and just finally circling back to uh, Ray Liotta, I did see that he has got there's a something coming out and a, a series on Apple TV. I think it starts next month, and it was him in a part written for him by David Simon. So uh, I'm expecting that should be pretty interesting. So let's keep our eyes peeled for that one too. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for joining me, everybody, for the offer. Uh, Thank you for uh, joining us. Thank you for joining (laughs) us. I was talking to you too. Thank you for joining me. (laughs) Talking to the people. The people. It's about the people, Lisa. The people. Really Um, do it for the people. Thanks for joining us for the offer. And we will see you next time. We will hear you. You will hear us next time on Killer Casting. Killer Casting is a concept created by her, Lisa Zambetti. It is produced by me, Dean Laffin. Logo art by my beautiful wife, April Laffin. Audio editing by him, Sean at choicevoiceproductions.com. And our theme music, We Are Beautiful, comes from them. That would be Hollywood Legends Amphibious Zoo Music. Until next time, Killer Casting out.